Good morning. Happy Labor Day to you. And I hope that you've been enjoying it and had a good time doing whatever that you do on Labor Day weekend. The title of this morning's message is The Greatest Challenge to Loving Someone Else. And we've been studying from 1 Corinthians 13, the nature of true love. The greatest challenge to loving someone else. And if you want to go ahead and, and um, look up another passage of Scripture so you'll be ready, turn to Luke 15 and just put a marker there. We'll be reading there also in the course of our study. The greatest challenge to loving someone else. We've learned so far that the people in Corinth were gifted and were doing all kinds of ministry, but they weren't really loving each other. So when he comes to chapter 13, he goes to great lengths to explain to them what was missing in their lives. And you may feel that way this morning. Active, perhaps even in church or a church if you're a guest. And, and you're pouring yourself out and you're busy and you're making commitments and you're serving, but you feel like something is missing. And Paul wants you and me to know what real love is. Real love is not feelings of attraction or affection, although that can certainly be involved. But what we have found so far is that agape love, the kind of love that God has for you and me, involves first a choice, and then it is a choice to accept someone as they are without conditions. And it's a choice that involves action. And so he wants us to know what real love looks like, and in 1 Corinthians 13, in 15 different ways, he describes the love of God. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've rented a car and that you're driving up a mountain. Got that picture in your mind? You've rented a car, you're driving up a mountain. And as you drive up that mountain, you're keeping an eye on the temperature gauge. You want to make sure the engine's not getting too hot as you climb the mountain. So you keep looking on the left side of your steering wheel. There's this gauge. It looks like it has a little thermometer on it. And it looks, it looks good. It looks like the little line needs to be where it is. It's in the safe zone, and you've got nothing to worry about. But as you continue driving up the mountain, you notice a little whiff of steam coming up from under the hood. And you realize that something is wrong, and you, you look over at that gauge on the left side, and the, the needle's still in the safe zone. Everything seems to be perfectly okay. And then your engine blows, and there's a lot of smoke coming out from under the hood. At that moment, you look over on the right side of your steering wheel at what truly is the engine temperature. It's in the red zone. That needle has pegged out. Your engine is blown. Paul says that you can make the mistake of looking at what you're doing, looking at how you're serving, looking at how you're giving, and you can look at that and that's what the people in Corinth were doing. They were looking at their giftedness. They were looking at how God was working through them. And by the way, God can work through anybody, even a lost person. And they were looking at God's activity through them, and they were looking at their giftedness, and they were looking at what they were accomplishing and their exercises of faith and their willingness to give their lives and pour out themselves and give to the poor and all those different things. 
But Paul says, here are the dials that you should be looking at. Not what you're doing, how many people you're helping, or how much money you're giving, but are you an overwhelmingly loving person? Are you incredibly patient? Are you warm? Are you filled with joy and compassion and hope for the people around you? Are you radically approachable? When you do have to tell the truth, do you always do it kindly and never with rudeness? Are you that kind of person? And so when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8, he's showing them and he's showing us what God's love looks like and how it acts. He doesn't use nouns, he uses verbs 15 different times. We saw last week in verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. And then the rest of the verse, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. It goes on and says, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And this morning, I want us to look at the next three actions or verbs described in verse 4. I want you to give your attention to the fact that love does not envy. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Before we start in our study of those three phrases, I want to ask this question. What is the greatest challenge to loving someone else? That's the title. We'll go ahead and answer it before we get started, okay? What's the greatest challenge to loving someone else? Sometimes we think, well, it's because of the way they act. It's... Uh, it's who they are. It's, it's got to do with their attitude. It's got to do with the way they look. It's got to do with the past that they have with me and, and how they have treated me. But what we discover pretty quickly is that the greatest challenge to loving someone else is, has nothing to do with them. The greatest challenge to loving someone else is me. The kind of love being described here, the only barrier, the greatest barrier is me. And so something has to change in me. Something has to change about me if I'm going to love like this. And I believe Paul zeroes in on three things pretty clearly. First, ask God to change the way I see me in relation to others. Ask God to change the way I see me in relation to others. In verse 4 it says, love does not envy. Now, the passage that I want to use from the teaching of Jesus, who is the master teacher, about what love is at this point, is the story of the prodigal older brother. Not the prodigal son, the younger brother, but the prodigal older brother. So if you've got your finger in Luke 15, I want you to go to verse 25. And as you turn there, let me rehash the story for just a moment. You should know this. If you're a Bible scholar, you've grown up in church, you've heard preachers talk about it, but let me... Let me tell you the story again. A son goes to his father, a younger son. And he says to his father, I don't want to wait for you to die to get your inheritance. I want it now. And so here's a son that comes to his father and he's saying to him, I want you dead. I want everything that's mine when you die and I want you dead. 
Now, if you were to do that in the Middle East today, I can tell you what probably the average father would do because they are very sensitive to honor and shame. And more than likely, that father would grab that son by the collar and beat him to death. I mean, that is a horrible thing, and it is an actionable thing in some cultures to tell your father you wish he was dead. But amazingly, and and as Jesus tells the story in that Middle Eastern culture that is very much unchanged today, as he tells that story in that culture, people had to be catching their breath. He didn't. He didn't do that. But he did. And so the son asked for this, and the father amazingly gives it to him. The son goes off and he, he spends all the money Waste it. That's what prodigal means. He just wastes it on all kinds of self-destructive behavior, self-destructive activities. And, and when he runs out of money, he runs out of friends. So it can tell you what kind of friends they were. Winds up in the pig slop. And there he sits, wishing he could eat what the pigs are eating. A Jewish man. And he comes to his senses. And he thinks to himself, here I am, sitting here like this. You know, at home, the slaves do better than this. And I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to tell him I've sinned against you. And he goes back, and as he returns, you know the story, it's an amazing story. The father, who didn't kill the son, not only didn't kill him, is waiting for him, watching for him. And of course, you know the father represents God. And so the father's waiting for him to come back, and he sees the son. And before the son can get to him, the father runs to the prodigal son. Well, then we're introduced to a new character in the story, a character that's often not discussed very much, but we find him in verse 25. The Bible says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. Why was he so angry? Well, obviously, he resented the father's goodness to his brother, and he was ignoring the father's goodness to him. Deep down, he was comparing himself to his younger brother. That was his problem. And that brings me to this statement. If you want to stop envy in your heart, you have to stop comparing yourself to others. That's the essence of envy. The Bible says it's foolish. The Bible says it's dumb, it's unwise. You're never to compare the way you look, your income, your intelligence, your kids, your husband, your wife, your job, or anything else. The Bible says don't do that. Well, why? Because when you're envious, ultimately, you're in a battle with God. I mean, who's behind those things? Who gives those things? Your problem isn't really with the person that you envy. Your problem is with God. You're doubting His goodness in your life. And you're resenting God's decision to bless somebody else. You're accusing Him of being unfair. 
And you think God loves somebody else more than he loves you and that he's playing favorites. But you know that's not true. The very love of God that we're studying, you know that's not true. You're thinking maybe he loves somebody else more than he loves me. God loves you as much as he loves anybody else. He doesn't love anybody else more than he loves you. He loves us unconditionally. It's not like I love them. I love them, but I don't love you. He doesn't play exceptions. And so what we need to do is we've got to learn to trust him. Maybe that's where you are right now. You're wondering, why hasn't God done certain things for me? And he does them for somebody else. Can I trust the goodness of God at that moment? Can you trust him? Can I trust that he does love me as much as he loves that person? That he doesn't love anybody more than he loves me? That he loves them, he loves me, it's all the same? How do I deal with that? Let me give you an alternative approach to those situations where you begin to wonder or doubt the love of God. Here's what you need to do instead. Replace envy with empathy. Replace envy with empathy. How do you do that? Well, Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Envy keeps you from entering into the joy of other people because you begin thinking about yourself and, and what you have and what you don't have. For instance, let's say you want to get, get married and, um, and you're not married and someone else gets married. Envy keeps you from celebrating the fact that someone else got married because you're thinking, why isn't that me? Why hasn't that happened to me? Let's say you're wanting to have a baby. This is not hypothetical, I know, for some of us. Maybe you're wanting to have a baby and you're thinking, why can't I have a baby? And then someone else, a good friend, maybe not even a friend, someone else has a baby. Someone in your Bible study group, they have a baby and you're thinking, why can't I have a baby? Why doesn't God do that to me? And instead of rejoicing with them, you resent them. Someone gets a promotion at work and instead of saying, way to go, that's great. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that that's happened for you. Let's go celebrate that. Instead, you're thinking, well, why didn't I get one? Why didn't that happen for me? And we could go on, and we can go on. As a result, what happens to you and me when we resent God's activity in other people's lives is that you can only be happy when good things happen to you. You know, most of life is pretty average. And from your perspective, it may seem that only bad things happen to you. And so if you're only going to be happy when good things happen to you, you're not going to be happy very much. But if you learn to rejoice when others rejoice, you're going to have a, a lot of other occasions to be happy. It's your choice. I can choose to rejoice or I can choose to resent. I can choose to trust that God knows what he's doing and I can rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. You know, a great place to practice this, you hear me talk about this all the time, but a great place to practice this is in a small group. And we have small group Bible studies that meet after this worship service. We have groups that are meeting right now during this service and they'll be worshiping in the next hour. 
And one of the neat things about a Bible study group is not only do I get to ask questions and learn about the Bible and study and grow in my, only, my knowledge of Scripture, but I also get to practice this thing called love. And when something cool happens to somebody in the Bible study group, well, man, we get a bunch of cheerleaders all at once, people around us, and they're going, yes, that's good, answer to prayer, praise the Lord. We're so excited about what God is doing for them. But it also works the other way. When you're broken, when you're hurting, you got people who are going to care. They're going to weep with you. They're going to care with you. They're going to care about the hurts, the hardships, the difficulties that come. And it's so important in this world that we live in when we get so disconnected from people, we drive into our garages and the garage door opens and closes. We don't connect with anybody else in our world that we're in a Bible study group, that we're in some kind of a small group where we can connect with other people. And so I need to ask God to change the way I see me in relationship to others. Love does not envy. But there's a second thing I need to ask God to change. I need to ask him to change the way I talk about me. In verse 4 it says, love does not parade itself. And that word there describes some verbal form of boasting or bragging or praise that I'm heaping on myself. I think parading itself is a good word. When we come to Luke chapter 15, verse 29, we see that that's the older brother. That's what he's doing. Listen to what he says in verse 29. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. And you can see it in the text. The older brother's self is rising up. Remember, the greatest obstacle to loving somebody else is what? Me. You can see self just rising up. His self is not being treated the way it wants to be treated, and that's what self will do. So here we are. Self is always grasping for attention and recognition. Self does that. Always grasping for attention and recognition. And what's wrong with the way he talks about himself in verse 29? Maybe he's just making a case, trying to point something out to the Father. Well, listen, what he was focused on was, first of all, his own dedication. He's saying, these many years, he's saying, I've been an extraordinary son. Look at my dedication. He's saying, look at my sacrifice. I've been serving you all these years. That word serve there literally describes the work of a slave. I've been slaving for you. It's been a grind, Pop. And that's what I've been doing. I've been slaving away for you. Look at my sacrifice. Look at my performance. I never transgressed any of your commandments. I've been obedient to you. He's saying, look at my accomplishments. I've earned a reward. You never killed the fatted calf for me. The problem is this. He said nothing about what the Father had done. He said really nothing about the Father. He said nothing about his younger brother, does not have on his radar screen any sense of the magnitude of what has happened because the younger son has come home. If we were to ask your closest friends and and your family who know you well, who are with you a lot, how would they describe an average conversation with you? Would they say, all I do is ask a question, and I just wait, and they just keep talking and talking and talking and talking about them? 
or do they truly care about me? Would they say, yeah, he cares about me. She, she takes an interest in me. He asks me questions about what's happening in my life. He, he gets involved in my life. I always feel encouraged after I talk to her. And every time we, we interact, I walk away feeling better than when the conversation began. The way I talk about me describes the way that I use words. I think most of us understand that we shouldn't boast or that we shouldn't brag. That's pretty ingrained in our culture, but yet we have a lot of subtle ways that we do it. Let's talk about what love does. We know what self does. It grasps for attention and recognition. What does love do? Love uses words to exalt God and edify others. That's what love does. It uses words, but takes the focus off of itself. Remember, God's love is not about feelings, and without conditions, it makes an investment in somebody else, and so it puts the focus on someone else. Let's look at words that exalt him. For example, Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Now, when I know the Lord, when I really know the Lord, praise is spontaneous. I mean, if you were at the ball game Friday night, or you were watching a ball game yesterday, I didn't get to watch the one I wanted to watch. But if you were watching those and somebody does something well in the field, it's not your accomplishment. But you see what that other person does, and what do you do? Yay! We cheer. We, we praise that activity. We take that person and we elevate them. When you and I truly know God and who He is, well, we know something of His beauty, we know something of His majesty, we know something of who He truly is and what He has done for us, we exalt Him. And you want to make Him large before others. You want to talk about Him. And so we use words to exalt God. We also use words to edify others. In Ephesians 4.29 it says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That means something that's really nasty. Something bad. He said, don't let that come out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Edify means to build up. Can you imagine a church where everybody in the church says, I'm not going to say anything unless it builds somebody else up. Oh my goodness, we wouldn't have enough chairs. A church that says, I'm just going to, nothing's coming out of my mouth unless it's going to bless somebody. Nothing's coming out of my mouth unless it's the favor of God being spoken to that person, to build them up, to help them draw closer to knowing God and knowing his love and knowing what he's like. God, make me a conduit. Make me a channel for that. So we ask God to change the way I see me in relation to others. Love does not envy. I'm asking God to change the way I talk about me. I'm going to edify him, exalt him. I'm going to edify others. And then number three, last thing, I'm going to ask God to change the way I think about me. Love is not puffed up. And this word puffed up, just as the word implies, just reading that, in, uh, in ancient times, if you wanted to inflate something, they didn't have these compressors, you know. They had bellows, and they would, they would use those bellows to inflate something. And this is describing something that's inflated. Love is not puffed up usually is a reference to pride. Now listen to the older brother again, verse 30. 
Luke 15, verse 30. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Do you get a sense that he's, that he's looking down his nose at his brother? Do you have that sense that he's looking down his nose at somebody else? That's always what happens when we get puffed up. It was an attitude. If he had never said anything, that attitude was bleeding through the way that he was responding to his brother. The younger brother knew he was lost. The younger brother knew he was in trouble. The younger brother needed, he knew he needed to come home. The older brother didn't have a clue, did he? He didn't have a clue. And that's the great danger of pride. Self is not only grasping for recognition, grasping for attention, but here's another thing self does. Self thinks itself above someone else. That's what self does. Whenever you start talking down someone, you're thinking yourself above them. That's not love. Love doesn't get puffed up like that, puffed, puffed up and bigger than somebody else. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and everything he's talking about here, we could pick examples out of the letter to the Corinthians. But here's one, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. Now, concerning things offered to idols, this was a big issue, big debate. A lot of food sold in the, at their local Hays had been sacrificed to idols. You didn't know that unless you asked, but that meat was there. It, it was leftovers, and they were making a profit from the temple by selling this meat. And so they, they go into the store, and uh, should you ask? And if you know that it's offered to idols, should you buy it? I mean, this was part of the discussion. Part of the, this was a moral dilemma that was being discussed in the church. And the people with the knowledge said, well, God is the God of everything. All things that God makes are good. And this is good meat. And so we're just going to give thanks to God for this. I've got knowledge. But others didn't think that way. They felt differently. They didn't feel that that was the right thing to do. And they had a different approach to that question. And a different result. And so because of that, one group was looking down their nose at the other group. They were puffed up. And they were saying, I've got this knowledge, and what your problem is is you don't have the knowledge that I have. And then he says, we know that we all have knowledge. This is Paul now addressing that issue. But he says, listen, friends, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up or edifies and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Paul was saying to the people of the Corinth, you can know your Bible, you can absolutely make the right moral decision and still be absolutely wrong. You don't know anything yet, he says, because you're proud. Your head, he says, is puffed up. Are you like the big brother who looks down his nose at the younger brother? It's not necessarily what you do or say that makes you like the big brother. It's the attitude of your heart. Love is not puffed up. It's the attitude of the heart. Is it a heart of pride? How good do you really think you are compared to anybody else? Do you really think you're substantively better than somebody who's committed a heinous crime and is sitting in a prison cell somewhere? Do you really think you're that much better than they are? 
You see, the challenge of the cross to that way of thinking is that you are so bad that it took the same Jesus dying on the cross to save you as it did the worst kind of sinner that you're looking down your nose at. Same cross, same need, great sin. Younger brother got that. Older brother didn't get that. When John the Baptist understood who Jesus was, it changed his whole attitude. In John chapter 3, verse 30, this is what John said. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's where you and I should live. It's really not about whether I'm better or worse than somebody else. It really doesn't. That's not an issue. Someday I'll be judged. Someday you'll be judged. We'll let the judge deal with that. But the issue is, is he increasing? Am I making him known? Am I seeking that his love would be the mark on my life and the way that I relate to other people, the way that I talk to other people, and the way that I think about myself? Here's the bottom line about the way love thinks about self. It's this. Love thinks itself and everyone else in need of the grace of God. Love thinks itself and everyone else in need of the grace of God. Can you imagine? The father wasn't on that hill on that afternoon. And the older brother was out there working, and the younger brother meets the older brother first. Can you imagine what that meeting would have been like? When the younger brother, who knows they're wrong, knows they're broken, knows they just need to be forgiven, and that younger brother comes home, and he meets the older brother first, and the older brother says, you're not good enough to hang with me. You're not good enough to be here. You don't belong here. And unfortunately, in too many churches, they have met the older brother before they met Jesus. And they think they can't go home to the Father. The forgiveness and mercy is too much to hope for, and so they go back to the pig slop again and again and again. I want you to notice today that I describe each of these words. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up. In terms of what you and I need to do to ask God to change us. And you say, well, why didn't you, pastor, just tell us this is what you need to do? Why didn't you give us a to-do sermon? Because you can't do this. You can't do this. It is humanly impossible to do what's described in 1 Corinthians 13. Let me explain it this way. I brought, I brought two cans with me. I brought a can of root beer and a can of Mountain Dew. I don't know which is your favorite, but I'm going to pick on the root beer. Okay? If I open the root beer... I pour the root beer out. What's going to come out of the can? You passed. Okay, root beer. Good job. Okay. If I open the Mountain Dew, if I open the Mountain Dew and I pour the what's inside out, what's going to come out? Mountain Dew. What'd you say? Mountain Dew. Okay. All right. So let's say the root beer begins to envy the Mountain Dew and, and wants to be Mountain Dewy. 
And like many of us, we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we say, okay, I get it, I get it, Pastor, I get it, Lord, Jesus, I'm going to be more loving. So as a can of root beer, we're going to be more Mountain Dewy. And I try to be more loving, but what keeps coming out is what's on the inside. The only way that I can become something other than I am is if something different is on the inside. It's the only way. I can't be more loving unless the one who is love lives in me. It's the only way. I can't do these things on my own. I can't say, okay, tomorrow, Monday, I'm going to do better at this. The only way you can do it is to let him in because he's the only one who ever did this. You've got to let him in and you've got to let him rule. You've got to yield your life to him and let him rule and then his love will flow through you. That's why I said you've got to let him change the way you relate to others. You've got to let him change. He has to rule. He has to rule. He has to be in charge. Is he Lord of your life? Dear brother or sister, is he ruling? The greatest challenge you're ever going to have in loving someone else has to do with what's already inside. And if it's all about you, if it's me, that's what comes out. Does he live in you? Is he ruling in you? This morning, if you're not sure that Jesus lives in you, in just a moment we're going to stand and sing, and I'm going to ask you to get up and to come out of the pew, out of the balcony, and come take one of the pastors by the hand and just say, hey, pastor, I'm not sure Jesus lives in me. I want to, I want to know what's involved. I want to know how to open up my life and let Jesus in. The Bible says that Jesus has done for you everything necessary for your salvation. You can't save yourself. You can't wipe away your sins. You don't have anything to offer God except your failure. You, you say, well, Pastor, I feel like a total failure. We're all total failures. All of us. And all we come to when we come to God is just with our willingness to surrender our lives to Him. And when we trust Him like that, what he did for you on the cross, where he died and paid the price for your sins, that comes to you as a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. But he does more than that. He says, I'll be with you forever. I will come in. And if you will let me rule, I'll live my life through you and I'll change you. I'll make you a different kind of man. I'll make you a different kind of woman. If you'll let me rule. And so if you're not a Christian today, I invite you to come. Start that new life. Tell these pastors, I want to be saved. I want to know Christ. I want to know his life in me. And then if you're a Christian, does he rule? Is he ruling? The great challenge you have is to get self out of the way so that it's not the thing that's coming out, but to let Jesus come and sit on the throne and let his life be ruled through you. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can become people who love because you first loved us and because of the kind of way that you approach people the kind of way that you talk about others the the way that you think about others we can be different 
when you are Lord and when you are living inside us. Father, as pastor of this church, I want to be a man like that. Where you are always on the throne and you are showing your love through the things that I say and do. Forgive me. Forgive us for not being a loving people when you have blessed us with so much. Father, as we enter this time of response, we do it with a sense of awe that we can hear your voice and respond to you. You are welcome here. Speak to us now, I pray. Amen. Stand with me, please. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my heart. Father, all over the nation, there are churches that are meeting today, and your Holy Spirit is speaking to your people. Father, I pray that your voice will be heard clearly, that your kingdom your ruling presence would become more and more the reality of what happens in our lives every day. Father, we sense and we see darkness rolling in unopposed. And we sense the enemy trying to shut Christians up in their buildings and keep us quiet. Teach us the weapons of love. Clothe us 
and fill us with your love. As we receive our gifts today, we pray that you would use these offerings, Lord. Not only to meet the needs that this congregation has to do ministry, but also to bless and enrich and encourage those who are doing ministry all over North America and around the world. And may your love, not our work, but may your love be the message that people hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.